You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at work? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal! From Lord Pohino! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores! Now you know him better than anybody probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? It's Series 10, it's Episode 2, I'm Chris Skoll. Joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And never mind Bob Holness, here's a real blockbuster, it's Michael Marden. Hello. Bob Holness, who didn't play the saxophone on Baker Street. No, he did not play the saxophone on Baker Street. That is very clear. How are you all? Good. Good. Good, good. Well, this has been, it's a great episode, isn't it? Um, So, should we just get on with a bit of correspondence, but then let's get into the interview. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. Okay, I'm going to send you a picture, which is always a pleasure, isn't it? What is going on here? What is wrong with this picture? And there's no Photoshop involved. Let's have a look. Whoa, hang on a minute. It's Peter Shilton in a Scotland kit. How has this happened? That's not not Photoshop. That's that's legit. That's legit. Peter Shilton, did he play for Scotland? What's the story? Dear Quickly, Kevin, with my first football memory stemming from Italia 90, Peter Shilton's never been high on my list of football heroes. With his lack of humour, never forgiving Maradona, and right-wing <laughs> views, he's very near the bottom of my list, in all fairness. <laughs> However, after finding a beautiful Italia 90 book in the local bookshop in the lovely named village of Temple Cloud, I was drawn immediately to a picture of the curly-haired disappointment sporting a Scotland shirt. For a split second, I wonder if I'd actually gained some beautiful clarity. And Schiltz was Scottish, and we could have been represented by Seaman or Besant at Italia 90, which would have seen us potentially into the final. Unfortunately, it wasn't LSD-induced clarity. Instead, a kit mix-up at Hampden Park in 1989, when England played Scotland in the Rouse Cup. (sighs) Shilton said, Arriving in the dressing room an hour or so before kickoff, I was taken aback to see the kit I'd been issued with contained a dark blue jersey. 
I couldn't wear it as Scotland would be in their traditional shirts of dark blue. No alternative jersey could be found, and in the end, I walked out of Hamden alongside Scotland goalie Jim Layton, the pair of us sporting yellow goalkeeper jerseys, complete with a Scotland badge on the breast. Wow! He adds, it was pointless me swapping shirts with Jim after that game. <laughs> Found it amazing that I'd never come across this before. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, that's lovely. And the most famous version of that is the Chelsea... Coventry one isn't it where Chelsea yeah. had to wear the Coventry kit there's an amazing sort of set of pictures I can't remember I saw on Twitter a while ago where it's pictures of players wearing you know when they change uh, swap shirts at the end of a game and they put them on and someone yeah. snapped a picture of them so there's one of the original Ronaldo in the red England away shirt that's amazing oh nice um, and I can't remember who the other one is possibly Maradona in in, yeah. in an England shirt and Steve Hodge's England shirt from 1986 <laughs> <laughs> I'd happily buy a coffee table book of footballers in the wrong shirts after swapping shirts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, all day long. In that picture there, Shilton, so it took, it, it took me a moment to spot the Scotland badge because he looks like he's got tiny hands for a goalkeeper. Yeah, he does look small, like, doesn't he? His left hand is, is very, very small. It might just be an angle and a, and a perspective thing. But how can it be? How can yeah, that angle it does. be? It, do, it does look like it could be a Photoshop. But his hand is in front of his face. You'd think the hand would look smaller if it was further away. Is it his head is massive? Is his head just... <laughs> his head-to-hand ratio is just enormous. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing with Peter Shilton, we never get to the bottom, do we? <laughs> it's just an enigma wrapped in a riddle. <laughs> exactly. Hi. As a Liverpool fan, I often scroll through endless news articles about the current goings-on down at Anfield. This morning, I happened to be reading a Liverpool Echo article on Stephen Gerrard's time as Rangers manager. The article was based on an interview with the Rangers legend Derek Johnson. Imagine my surprise when I read that said interview took place at a special event to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Football Pools panel. After a quick search on the internet, I found out that at the event there were some new members inducted into the secret society that is the Pools panel. In a move to bring the Pools panel into 2022, former Liverpool and Everton goalie Rachel Brown Finnis was inducted alongside Michael Owen. What? Michael Owen is wow. now on the pools panel. Isn't that exciting? I mean, probably not if you're watching it, if he's on it. <laughs> <laughs> Just when you thought the pools panel couldn't get any more drier. Having read more about it, the pools and pools panel have always been based in Liverpool. It obviously made sense to have people who live nearby. Hence the panel normally being made up of northerners. The article said it's also the 100th anniversary of the football pools in 2023 and there are big plans to celebrate. Very exciting that, isn't it? I can't wait for the uh, 100th anniversary of the football pools. So so it still happens? Yeah. But, I mean, it's so many questions. But what happens then if... You don't have the answer, I'm just saying this out loud, but Mm. obviously this year there have been a lot of postponements for football games. So let's just say, for example, Burnley-Arsenal is postponed. The pools panel in that game week get together and go... We think Arsenal would have won 2-1. They're they're on Zoom these days, surely to God, aren't they? Yeah. Then when Arsenal do eventually play Burnley, does that fixture go back into the pools panel for that week, like a sort of double game week Uh, on FPL? No, 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 no. Because the claims have been made. So it's like like the the weekly lottery numbers being announced. But then imagine if the the result is the result you have picked, but not the one that the pools panel picked, and that ends up costing you the final prize. 
Yes, well, that you know, that's that's the game you play, isn't it? You've got to be um, more in tune with Michael Owen than you have with reality. But obviously, Michael Owen is a man who loves reality, so that's good. <laughs> He's not into fiction. <laughs> do you want Michael Owen's? Do you want Michael Owen's quote upon in being inducted into the football pool, oh, pools yeah. panel? Oh yes. The football pools has been a tradition for generations of family, and mine is no different. My dad used to do the pools, and he would even let me get involved in picking some of the games. Now I can no longer affect results as a player. I'm delighted to have been asked to sit on the panel to hopefully put my knowledge of the game to use to help others. There we go. So dry. It's lovely, isn't it? They should definitely just play it out on Chatman9798. Just put those teams into that database. Play it out. Pop the five-minute video on social media. They, they want to build a bit of traction, relaunch it. I think that's the way to do it. Do you know what, as well, like... Everyone talks about like fantasy football, and but no one ever talks about the football pools. I don't know anyone who plays it anymore. Do you think like the pan the panel is there because someone somewhere like needs it to carry on because they get a paycheck? But actually, no one is actually. Well, playing who, the pool. What, how much money's going into it? I have no idea. What's the what's the prize these days? <laughs> is it like the lottery where it, it the prize is dictated by how many people are doing it? If you gave me a tenner and said go play the football pools. I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know where to go. Like, is that something you do at a news agent? No. I, si- I simply don't know. <laughs> okay, do you want one more email? Yeah. Hi, chaps. Love the podcast. Despite only being born in 1991, I think Euro 96 is to me what World Cup 66 is to Josh. <laughs> to the point, <laughs> I was recently Googling Thanksgiving and discovered, to my amazement, that Liberia is one of the countries that celebrates this holiday. A further Wikipedia link uh, on Liberia revealed something stunning. The current Liberian Prime Minister is George Weah. What? Did you know this? What? Yeah, I knew this. Isn't that incredible? I mean, he's probably the most famous... Yeah, of course. Apart from the girl that Michael Jackson sings about, probably the most famous Liberian in history. So, obviously, he's going to be in with a chance. But it would be mad to think that, like... I suppose Gary Lineker's quite... But it is a, a huge thing to happen, is George Weah to climb to then be the Prime Minister of Liberia. And it's also... It's such a, a gamble with your reputation, isn't it? Yeah. Look at Michelle Platini. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He's very rarely talked about as one of the great footballers anymore yeah. because of his move into football governance. George Weah's been... Pr- isn't that mad, though? Is there pictures? He's been president since uh, 2018, January 2018. I I don't want to check in case. What are his politics? Um, Well, his political party is the Congress for Democratic Change. But, I mean, that could go two ways. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when you type in George Weyer into Google as well, it comes up president of Liberia. There's no mention of his football career. He has now transcended football. He's a politician. (laughs) George Weyer, again, primarily known for being a politician at this point. I love this little detail as well. Uh, Didier Drogba and Samuel Eto'o attended his inauguration. Of course they did. Yeah. They're eyeing up being the president of Ivory Coast and Cameroon, respectively. Wouldn't it be great if everyone's... Um, if the best 90s player from each country <laughs> was the president? Just by default. Imagine the UN. Yeah, oh. so, so the UN would currently consist of UK Prime Minister Alan Shearer. Yes. Paolo Maldini, Italy. Paolo Maldini, Italy. Yeah. French Prime Minister Zinedine Zidane. Yeah. Which of these is most likely? Zidane, could you buy that? No, I don't think he'd get voted in. No. Um, Maldini, you buying that? Oh, 100%, yeah. 
Lothar Matthäus, the German Chancellor. Peter Schmeichel leading a populist revolution in Denmark. Yeah, Peter Schmeichel. <laughs> <laughs> he just refuses to answer any questions in press conferences. <laughs> and wouldn't the world be a better place if Andrei Kanchelskis was there? That's all I'm saying. Do you think there would be a direct relation between the type of player they are and their sort of policies and political views? Do you think Matt Letitia's unwillingness to take part in the group think of Southampton's football team <laughs> and play his own game has led to him... Um, I think he'd surround himself with a load of yes-men that yes. just are there to sort of serve and service him. He's not, he's, not a, he's not a team player. We should probably end this discussion with that incredible tweet someone sent out about Matt Letitia. Um, you know the one, don't you, Skull? Yeah, a guy called Mark White tweeted. Matt Letissier tweeted, I do not stand with Ukraine, I do not stand with Russia, I do not stand with the UN or NATO, I stand with the civilians in each country who will lose everything and be displaced while politicians and their media play their war and propaganda games. Not sure why that's so offensive to so many people. And someone has retweeted that. A guy called Mark White has retweeted that saying, Matt Letissier was once substituted for a man claiming to be George Weah's cousin and has not believed a word that anyone in any job of power has said since. <laughs> that was the moment it went wrong for Latisse. And it perfectly brings it back to the president of Liberia, George Weyer. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch, this is how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Right, now it is time for our guest, Jarlith Regan. This is a great episode. Of course, another documentary behind the scenes, this time following Mick McCarthy as Ireland attempt to qualify for France 98. As always with uh, documentaries about football managers in the 90s, not everything goes to plan. Please welcome comedian, host of the excellent Irishman Abroad podcast, but most importantly, Irish football fan. And we've just learned he considers himself a personal friend of Mick McCarthy. Please welcome to Quickly Kevin, Jarlath Regan. Hello, boys. How are you doing? Good, good, good. I mean, I don't know if personal friends a bit much, but I definitely <laughs> like. Okay, define he's not your calling me when his car breaks down. <laughs> but but w- were I to say it's life or death I have to get through to Mick McCarthy in the next 20 minutes do you think it could happen yeah yeah no he texts me back all the time what does he what kind of response times are we talking pretty decent I'd have to say like I got in touch when he lost the last job and uh, yeah and I was just like I'm really sorry and you know but this is the mark of the man and this is what this documentary is all about to me it's just like there's he's just a super good man <laughs> no yeah, when when he when you win his trust and when he believes in somebody uh, or he's made you know made the judgment that i you're good you're good in his books that's it it takes a fair bit to get out of them i think um we did a long interview together in his house and uh it went really well and i didn't you know overstep the mark and i think that he, we've always been you know, texting ever since. So how did you achieve that good rapport? Was it asking cowardly softball questions for an hour and a half then? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was me asking him, uh, would you uh, prefer to play the game well or win the game at all costs? (laughs) I mean, 
what the hell was going on there? <laughs> What's that all about? So with Irishman Abroad, uh, which uh, is uh, where you interview Irish uh, people who are um, kind of expats in the UK, you mm. must have spoken to quite a lot of them. Because if you said what was the greatest kind of Irish industrial export of the 90s, you'd say it was footballers. Mm, or, certainly, um, or certainly people pretending to be Irish that grew up in the UK. That was the number one English import, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. To Ireland. Easy now. Yeah. <laughs> what, what would, how many have you spoken to? Have you, have, um, you, have you done a lot of that Jack Charlton team? Yeah, I would have. A good few of them. I mean, Niall Quinn, Ronnie Whelan, uh, Tony Cascarino was one of my first episodes. And the killer there was. But he's he, not Irish. Yeah, well, he opened up about that in the first 30 seconds. Like, he really was like, I'm, I'm on the Irish man abroad. Uh, but here's the truth. And I hadn't hit record yet. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh no! What a rookie error. And uh, so that's that's lost forever. But I was actually in touch with him this week and he's going to come back on and do another episode because Tony Cascarino is somebody that you could talk to forever. Like he yeah. just has so many tales. I loved the Niall Quinn episode was a big one. Packy Bonner, Shay Given. Uh, I mean, I'm, there's a few that I've been chasing for a while that just just can't get pinned down John Aldridge. And and I wondered watching this, when you think about how he left the squad, oh. is that part of it? Is that why he's reluctant to... The bit where he leaves the squad is incredible. Oh, um, yeah. we, we'll come just on that. But like hearing you say those names, I don't I don't know. What club do you support, Jala? I'm a Liverpool supporter. So you're Liverpool. Yeah. Is there a team, of any team ever, that matches for you in terms of your love for it? That '90s Ireland team. Yeah, it's very, very Do you hard. Prefer isn't the it? Liverpool it... Championship winners of 2019 <laughs> or 2020, whatever year it was, to the Ireland team that got to the quarterfinals of the yeah. Italian '90 World Cup. Well, look, it's a bit like the first album you love. It's written into your own vinyl or hard drive mm. what it should look like. I know it's like Italian '90 was for you guys. That yeah. that squad. It just has a place in your heart because they're the first stories you knew behind all these people. And there were so many characters on the team. In fact, like this documentary to me reflects this period in Irish football, which was like the Be Here Now album from Oasis. <laughs> Difficult second album. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but it was also just all of the expectation and that, well, of course we should be qualifying for the World Cup was the attitude in Ireland at the time. We qualified yeah. for the last two. Uh, this is now a thing we do. We go to the World Cup. <laughs> but it's just not that simple. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that 90 team, there'll never be, there'll never be a team like that for me. But definitely that Liverpool team around that time, though, was big as well. Like I was really, I, I was just discovering football. I discovered it quite late. Uh, mm probably around 10 years old, I just became obsessed at that point. And uh, yeah, those were my introduction to how the game was played and everybody tried to emulate all of those players in whatever way they could. Because it's interesting what looking at this, because so the, the documentary is following Mick McCarthy as Ireland attempt to qualify for France 98 in what it must be said is a very easy group, but we will come to that. It's an incredibly <laughs> easy group. What's what's the opposite of a group of death? The group of life, because it's right here. Yes. Romania, Lithuania, Macedonia, Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Ireland. Like, come on. Oh, so were you were you 
presumably that's come from seedings. Mm. Like, so we were a top uh, seed at the time. Were you a top seed? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that was part of the expectations. Like we're top seed now, kind of swaggering around the place. I mean, come from you know, very low in the charts when you think about it yeah. to get to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. It was. They, people always talk about it, that it was the time when Ireland kind of woke up to the possibility that it's out there for you. If you want it, you can go and get it. Having spent mm. all this time kind of in this kind of dark, windswept island. I mean, that's the way it's painted. But yeah. it, it, there was a sensation in the country at the time that we can do it. We can we can fight on the big stage against the best of them. And, you know, that that's kind of paralyzing in some ways because right. you're, their image this in their mind. This is when the pressure got to you. Yeah. And look, when Jack goes, the next man in the door is going to have the toughest job. And this is why yeah, I love this documentary David Moyes so situation. Completely. Yeah. The, that he's trying to organize the party that everybody really enjoyed again. But it's not the same party. I'm not, I'm not doing the same party. I'm doing, you know, you, you know, that time where you have a great, we had that great night out. Let's just do yeah. it again a year later. And it's just not the same. Yeah. And the attempt of trying to emulate it makes the memory of the previous one better. Uh, so Mick kind of bore the brunt of all of that. And also, though, there's a big storyline in this whole documentary of how much the press were on him, oh, in it's him, brutal. in his face. Yeah. And, you know, England has a lot to answer for that because the type of journalism that was going on at that time around managers and kind of leaning on them and putting pressure on them in these jobs, it was all beginning around that time. The mm. Graham Taylor documentary is obviously big to this. It's a huge influence upon this. Well, Mick, Mick McCarthy at one point mentions Mm. Graham Taylor swearing, presumably in that Graham Taylor documentary. And you're like, so you're aware of the source material that this documentary is going to be compared to. You're aware what a disaster that documentary was for Graham Taylor. But you've still gone ahead with this. <laughs> was, it a, was it a disaster for him? Like, I, I yeah. again, I was, you know, we're removed. I always think this sometimes when I'm over here doing stand-up comedy, that I've just raised... So different, so close, but so differently. And our experience, my experience, certainly my friends and my father watching it with me was, we loved Graham Taylor after that documentary. Yeah, that's because you were Irish. (laughs) (laughs) Look at the damage he's doing. (laughs) I just, I just loved his, you know, uh, tell, tell your, tell your colleague who's just lost me my job. I just loved yeah. that. I, was just like, I think I think twenty years on, people now consider Graham Taylor, because of that documentary, quite a noble figure. In the same way that people now consider John Major quite a noble prime minister, <laughs> but at the time, <laughs> they were seen as absolutely disastrous leaders. Would you say that's fair, Chris? Yeah, I think that's fair. I was trying to think like I don't think Mick McCarthy comes out of this bad in the same way that Graham, Graham Taylor. No, I think comes out of that documentary maybe a bit inept and slightly out of his depth. I don't think Mick McCarthy comes out of this bad. I think he seems tactically astute, but there is a clues that maybe the players aren't with him. But I thought the real baddie is it the little comments you see that you see throughout the documentary that really paints the kind of uh, Football Association of Ireland in a bad light. There's a little bit where Mick McCarthy's like in a hotel reception and you get a little clip of his conversation oh, he's yeah. having with someone which says, I don't think it should be up to me to get a room for the press conference. And then he walks <laughs> off. And you're like, what? 
sort it, Brendan. Sort it out. I'll be up there. I'll be back in here in ten minutes with a stroll. Alright. I don't think it should be up to me to get the room to land the press conference, you know. There's loads of little tiny things throughout this document that I don't even think they're in there intentionally. But paint a picture of kind of what is going on here? Like this, this. I mean, this feels like an impossible job more than the, the Graham Taylor for England in '92. Well, the FAI, you know, would later implode, and it's so interesting. You know, the seeds of that, like you say, that you can see as a, somebody who's followed the journey to Champagne Football, this brilliant book that was written by Mark Tighe about uh, John Delaney, who kind of went for this huge power grab in Saipan uh, by being the front face of the uh, FAI while Roy walks out, uh, who then goes on to just plunge the association into like the craziest debt imaginable, making all kinds of mad decisions and kind of muscling people out, kind of having this kind of real weird reign of power in there that they're still trying to fix to this day. So you could kind of see it. This is a this is an organization that's been struggling for some time, uh, but also struggling to cope with the success and the demand of it and trying to, again, live up. Yeah. Like this documentary mm. is about how Mick McCarthy somehow managed not to get fired despite not qualifying <laughs> for this World Cup because Joe Kinnear, they wanted him. It was they wanted huge, Joe Kinnear? Yes, there was a huge push. No. And, and like you say, some of it had to be the players. There had to be those rumblings. Like, I don't know if you felt this, and I'm sure we'll get to it later, but the training ground stuff is just, I wanted more of that. I wanted yeah. so much more. Yeah. But I just didn't feel that like they were like tuned into his voice. Maybe they were all exhausted in that scene, but they weren't certainly going, yes, boss, listening. I no. don't know, do Premier League players say yes, boss? <laughs> but they certainly, it, it seemed like a blurry line there. Like he has the jersey on. He's kind of training with them, but he's not training with well, them. I think that's yeah. the situation Mick McCarthy finds himself in. Mick McCarthy, he says it himself, was one of Jack Charlton's kind of most trusted players. Now he's a bit older, but he finds himself in this weird position where he is now the manager and he is trying to clear out his own generation. Mm -hmm. So all of the players that Mick McCarthy played with, he didn't play in 94, did he? But he played in 1990, mm -hmm. Mick McCarthy. And he would have played in 88 as well, presumably. Mm -hmm. I don't, yep. um, and so, he has come back, but he knows loads of them from being in the dressing room with them as a player. Yeah. And and now he's in a position of authority and he's also trying to move on to this next generation. It's kind of an impossible situation. And I was quite surprised that you'd see these players popping up and it does feel so... It feels like a clash of generations. There's players that pop up and you go... Bloody hell, Kevin Kilban was around in 1997. <laughs> and then you also go, bloody hell, Tony Cascarino was still around in 1997. Yeah, scoring goals. <laughs> yeah, scoring goals. <laughs> it's like this thing where you're like, this is this weird no man's land between these two teams, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. It's like yeah. there's a bit of a, is it like a Jason McAteer pass into a Ray House and goal? I'm like, hang on, these two generations apart. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me of like, yeah. um, do you remember that advert? Um, I think it was a Nike advert where in the 90s, God, I haven't thought about this in ages, where they'd like 
mashed together all these great Man U players from across the generations, passing between each other. Mm. And then Ryan Giggs scored. I bet you'll remember this, won't you, Michael? Yeah, I actually watched that recently. And um, I just couldn't stop laughing at how bad bad the CGI was. Because I remember watching it at the time thinking, oh, that's incredible. It's so seamless. And it's a bit like if you went back and played GoldenEye now, you're like, fucking hell, this is not how I remember. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it reminded me of that, where you've just got these two... He's got all these players that you just didn't know coexisted, really. Mm. And what people forget is that, like, Mick was so inexperienced at the time. I mean, he just had one stint at Millwall. And now here he is plunged into this. He mentions at one point that he was offered a Serie A job. (laughs) I couldn't figure out if that was a joke or not. Because he said... I I don't think he jokes. I think what you get... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what you see with Mick McCarthy, that's just that's just the man. That was the that was what he says anyway, that he was reluctant to take the job. He wondered if he had the experience to take the job. And I think sometimes what's so amazing is that he gave so much to this. It's so revealing at such a period of growth in him becoming a manager, like a really solid manager. Like it'd be like Josh, you going yeah, you can do a documentary about me as I go around the open spot circuit in London making all the mistakes that I'll never make again. Yeah. I'm sure there's mistakes here that he just would never in a million years do over, but he had to make them and he did make them. And with reflection, he he knows that. So I'm not a knowledge on Mick McCarthy. So I've got a few questions to fill in here. Number one, before he takes a job, is he a popular legend of the Irish football scene? Well, I would say, yeah, he was called like Captain Fantastic. I remember getting the biography, Captain Fantastic, being so delighted. He wasn't He wasn't a McGrath figure in the McGrath was cool. Like Paul McGrath yeah. like, was just such a, like he was an incredible force. And that's a whole yeah. other storyline in this, that McGrath leaving this squad was so gut-wrenching for the country because there's a whole... Was he the favourite player of the country, Paul McGrath? Uh, Certainly for a big portion of the country, he was just like a godlike figure. Mick certainly wasn't that, but, you know, he was the captain. I mean, that that place in itself during Italia 90 to have, you know, been the marshal in the middle of it all. But I don't think he was like... Well, think about it. His role wasn't even cool. Like he was just a solid kind of bone crunching guy who would get up and down and, you know, he was a coach on the field. Uh, but like, I certainly don't remember anybody with a Mick McCarthy T-shirt. What <laughs> 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 do you respect to Mick McCarthy and the T-shirt makers of Ireland at the time? There's a lot of ooh, uh, Paul McGrath T-shirts, a lot of Jack T-shirts. Like Jack was so huge as a as yeah. a character like people people loved him and you know i want to respect his memory here but he did once tell my wife to fuck off what <laughs> jack chilton yeah she was three years old <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was having a pint in the pub near her parents house in the west of ireland and she was sent up with her autograph book to get uh, the autograph and you guys, like if you, you've no idea how cute a kid this was. Like this is a long, blonde, ruddy cheeks kid toddles up with her notebook. And he looked down at her and said, fuck off. I'm trying to enjoy my pint. <laughs> and, 
you know, she <laughs> grew up in an Irish house. She was well used to the term fuck off. She knew that this is not good. And she knew not to tell her dad because he was like, he would go bananas if this was happening. But he was over there fishing. And despite being this hero of the country, it's the most shocking Jack Charlton story I've ever heard to the point where I'm not even sure that we should put it in a podcast. Because... <laughs> It's just so insane. Like, it just doesn't fit with the legend because that yeah. man was adored and still is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's... And was he, he wasn't loved from the off, though, presumably, because he was an England player. Yeah. But he earned it, right? Or was he adored from the off? No, I think you're right. I think there was a certain amount of reluctance there. Like, it really was a case of, well, why can't we find an Irish person to do this job or certainly somebody of Irish heritage? But mm. yeah, look, he he had a way with words, right? He just had a way with people. And, you know, he just, he had charisma. He had that, you know, yeah. Bill Clinton stuff that yeah, he yeah. walked in a room and people were happy he was there. But this is actually one thing I was going to ask about because, like, coming in after Jack Charlton is a tough gig. But Jack Charlton is quite tactile. You know, you want to play for him. You can see that he's a bit of a motivator. You know he can put his arm around a player. And Mick McCarthy, I don't know, getting out of this documentary, I thought, he's not that guy at all. He's about as far from Jack Charlton as it can be as a manager, I thought. He's quite stiff in his ways. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of empathy there. I, like, And it, it's clear there's a bit of fractiousness between the dressing room and him. And he just seems to lean into that and make things he even more He doesn't feel like fractious. I'd run through a brick wall for no. McCarthy. Not even a plasterboard wall <laughs> and not even a sheet of paper. <laughs> not even one of those ones you get in Japan. Not, not even if it's pre-perforated. But again, again, I think that that comes later for him. And I think that he doesn't get to, you know, the last 16 in 2002 without Roy Keane, without being able to motivate guys and that we just don't see it here. I thought the amount of access that was there in the dressing room and all of that was really minimal in this. This is more of a character, you know, portrait of the man when he's not around the players. Uh, but that's really revealing. I think that all of that do has to come. But you're right at this point. You know, I remember this Jack Charlton story. I, I don't know if this has been said on the podcast before, but... Uh, don't worry, that's never stopped us, Charlie. <laughs> 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 Stories we've done seven or eight times, mate. Uh, the 90s isn't that big a palette. <laughs> Jack put up the team sheet and there were 12 names on it. And um, I think it was Niall Quinn said to... Andy Townsend, uh, there's 12 names on that. That's what are we going to do? And Andy went up to Jack and said, Jack, there's a bit of a problem. And he goes, what? There's 12 names on the team sheet. And he goes, who pointed that out? <laughs> <laughs> he says, Niall did. And he goes, tell him he's not playing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is that, right? There is that, like, as much as that's just a throwaway story and who knows if it happened or not. Yeah. But there was a humour to, you know, his bravado and kind of I'm the boss that you yeah. don't have when you start out in anything. You don't yeah. have the kind of the guts to go, everybody shut up and listen to me for a minute. I know what I'm doing here, especially if a lot of those people are the people that you were previously employed alongside. How had he done at Millwall? Um, he'd got them. I think he'd got them to third. He got them into the playoffs uh, where, they, where they subsequently lost. And then I think his final in the season. 
Yeah, in the champion. So he didn't get them. Obviously, didn't get them up. And then this his next season, I think he left in about February to take the Ireland job. Um, and they were kind of mid-table. But after he left, uh, the, the the side went down. So he did oh, kind right. of okay. That, I think that's fairly yeah. that's good for Millwall to be like knocking around yeah. the yeah. promotion hunt. There's an incredible bit in it. Overall, the mood is quite bleak throughout. Considering yes. they get to the playoffs, um, which they eventually lose. But there's an incredible bit where he's asked if he's got any regrets. No, his biggest regret. And he says that he was offered the Wolves job just before he was offered the Ireland job. And he wishes he'd taken that. (laughs) That's that's astonishing, isn't it? And you think, that is, I can't believe you've said that. Yeah. Because imagine now if Gareth Southgate came out and said, I really wish I hadn't taken the England job. I got, offered, <laughs> I got offered the job at Aston Villa. You go, that would be a national scandal, and he'd probably have to walk. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that uh, this also came out after this had taken place, and I think it, the scrutiny that he was under. Like we'd never really seen the likes of it in Ireland at the time. Like you forget that so many people in Ireland weren't really into football until Italia 90. Like legitimately, that was the case. People liked Gaelic games, rugby, you know, hurling. Did Euro 88 cut through as well? Or was that a bit of a kind of... Yeah, well, that of course was, was huge. But I mean, Italia 90 was what converted the whole country, like the whole country was on board. So, so much I felt of what was taking place was new. And I only realized that now with hindsight, because you were still a kid when you were watching it all. I was still just, you know, in love with the whole thing. But, you know, he was obviously regretting, I feel anyway, just the scrutiny that he was under. Like, were you guys blown away by exactly how much time he seemed to be giving over to the media, that there didn't seem to be anybody there going, drawing the line and going, look, that's over now. You've had your chat for the day. It seemed to be constant. He's yeah. so pissed off in those press conferences. It's incredible. He's, he's besieged, isn't he? It's just there's there's scenes, it's cut scenes of him. You see him walking along, like presumably making his way from the hotel to the training, and he's getting hounded by the press, and he's going like, "Enough, enough! I don't want to torture anymore." There's a little tiny scene of that, but you really get the the impression that he's, there's a siege mentality here. Like I wonder, like mentally, that must have been so tough because he the, the the bit about John Aldridge saying, "I'm done, see you later," and he just walks off. Like you've got the one thing of the players don't necessarily feel like they're with you you've got the fans booing the the Roy Keane yeah. you've got the, you've got the FAI and not necessarily backing him up and you've got the media all over you it's it, impo- it is so tough it's one like mm. it, I think it's one of the toughest jobs we've seen because at mm. least when it happened to Graham Taylor at least you felt like you had the infrastructure around him of a, a football association who maybe knew what they were doing he feels a little bit protected and that the, the, the players are kind of with him to some extent but with Mick, it's just like, wow, you, you're on your own here. You're really on your own. Mentally, it must have been so tough. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Roy Keane booing situation, and that That's really mad. stood out, wasn't it? That just crazy. That was insane. And Do you want to explain that? Yeah, let's explain it, yeah. Yeah, so basically, Roy had been uh, told that he needed to come with the team to America for uh, this US Cup thing. And he had just won the double with United and said he desperately needed a break and had said that to Mick directly. But Man United can, uh, kind of were the ones to deliver the news to the FAI. 
then there was, I think, another game after that that he didn't, uh, he couldn't go to and was spotted at the cricket, which, you know, was another big thing. I mean, it's it's just the not most an English Irish thing to do. <laughs> yeah, he went to the cricket rather than play the football. But it was quite obvious that, you know, Roy, Roy was doing something that now we regard as normal players being burned out at the end of a season, especially playing them in the way he did with the intensity that he did, that he needed the time. And one journalist specifically kind of encouraged the crowd to uh, boo him when he came back, when he started playing for the country again. And not everybody did, but some did enough for them to be able to put it in the documentary. and. I think it was notable afterwards that, you know, Mick commented on the rubbish atmosphere in the stadium, but he didn't actually say nobody should ever boo anyone who lines up for the country. And I felt like that was, you know, certainly again, we're talking about seeds of stuff growing that had to be a seed of something that would later blow up. Roy Keane returns to the Irish squad for the home game with Iceland. Keane's commitment to the cause has been questioned. One newspaper has called for him to be booed at Lansdowne Road. There was a couple of articles that actually encouraged fans to come along and, and vent their anger or show what they actually feel for Roy. Now, whatever they feel for him, what I would say is something that's bigger than that is the rest of us in here. That's the important thing, the, the team and the team doing well. And from the start of the game, when they, when they booed Roy, the atmosphere was very, very poor. Did they always have a fractious relationship, him and Mick? It seems like Roy never rated him as a player, which is obviously, you know, things that have come out in his books since. Also, Roy at the time seems to be, I don't know how to start this because, <laughs> uh, you know, I remember talking to you, Josh, you're going, oh, he was mad. And you know, other comics will say to me, oh, Roy Keane's mad. Like he's, he's a crazy man. And that was not as a, his image to us. His image to us was like- I don't think it's his image anymore either. Now, in the last year, I think- Yes. The increased media exposure to Roy Keane, it's almost like, you know, like when you go, um, you know, when someone's accused of being mad and they're like, maybe I'm the only sane person. And like, it feels like Roy Keane's one of the few sane voices in football <laughs> in a weird way. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, but I guess it was overloaded with testosterone and ego during yeah. the game, during his years as a player. So when you ask if his relationship with Mick McCarthy was frosty, I think his relationship with every human being, every <laughs> every person he encountered during the apex of his career was fractured and ready to explode because it was about how dare you say that to me? Do you know exactly, not do you know who you're talking to, but like, I'm not going to take that from you because if I start to take that from you, where does it end? I love yeah. looking up footage of him from back then because it was just always dialed up to 11. You never saw him kind of half anything. Is he popular in Ireland? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I mean, like, really? Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's like... <laughs> 
<laughs> like you wouldn't believe like really? I sent you on a clip today, Josh. Yeah. You know, that's just one example of, you know, huge scale interviews with him where, you know, yeah. there's thousands of people. Is that the one where he's with Gary Neville? It is the one with Gary. I've, Neville. I've seen that. Yeah. So it's him and Gary Neville in a kind of huge theater in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, and they're on Off the Ball, which is a big sports show uh, on News Talk. And people have you know, come to this in massive numbers. But you can also, I think that's a good reflection of how he's regarded by a certain quarter of people, a huge amount of people. Uh, just think he's the greatest Irish footballer of all time uh, and that they still think he was right to walk out on the World Cup. But it, what's funny is how that changes over time. And as you say, how the the narrative just adjusts a bit like Michael Jordan in The Last Dance, that except in reverse, right, that uh, Michael Jordan just had that image of being perfect. Yeah. And The Last Dance revealed, oh, no, he was an actual prick. Yeah. <laughs> you can't <laughs> you can't be around this man. You can't you can't beat this man at flipping quarters or he will come after you <laughs> and try and make you eat quarters. <laughs> he, uh, I think that I can't speak for all of Ireland's view of Roy Keane, but I know that he's still held up really high. And if anything, Josh, the more he gets to speak and the more he gets to explain you know, his views on football, more people come on board and go, even Liverpool fans who would have hated him, yeah. start to go, yeah, I, I, I get it. But every now and then you get a little glimpse into how he had that Michael Jordan prick side to him. You, you put a foot wrong, now you're dead to me. Yeah. And it's like, that's not fun. It, it, it's in a weird way. And I don't, remember this at the time and maybe I'm but in a weird way you know when you get a country that's a small small footballing nation but they've got one of the best players in the world and that is what the situation with this Irish team was Roy Keane is the best midfielder at the one of the best clubs in Europe and throughout the late 90s you, you could argue Roy Keane along with Patrick Vieira maybe Edgar Davids or something that he's the best midfielder in the world mm. and part of you goes should you be building everything around this man do you know what I mean in the same way like I don't know Romania have Georgie Hadji or I know he's not the same attacking talent but it's, it's an incredible kind of player to have at your disposal yeah, I mean, like, I think that, again, but then, just, just to contradict myself, <laughs> the thought of giving Roy Keane the platform to have everything built around him may be the most dangerous managerial <laughs> decision of all time, in a way. Well, look, this documentary doesn't capture the two players that came into the squad the following September that really laid the foundation for 2002 mm. and that's obviously Robbie Keane and Damien Duff yeah. and Mick deserves the credit for again Kilban you know we see him go and find Kilban and go come on let's go <laughs> those guys like were were the you know when you say we set it up around Roy they kind of did to a degree yeah. those guys the team that tried to qualify for 1998 just didn't have enough attack in them and they had some good players, didn't they? You're watching God, it yeah. and you're going, Dennis God, Irwin. they've got Dennis Irwin. They've got Phil Babb. Is, these are players who go, 
these aren't worse than players that are at the World Cup. Do you know mm. what I mean? Jason McAteer is a really good player. Andy Townsend's a really good player. It's not like Wales with Ryan Giggs. Do you know what I mean? It was most of the players are of a strong Premier League level. Yes, 100%. And I don't feel like we got to see that in the documentary, really. But I, again, the training ground stuff, I don't know if you guys enjoyed the training ground stuff as much as I did. And Jason McAteer's arguments with the referee in the training match. Could either, could any of you figure out what the hell I the argument was over? Oh my God, I'm so hoping that someone else would know what was happening there. So yeah, they have a they have a little training. They, they show they dedicate about three minutes to a training match, and it appears to be kicking off. And you can't quite figure out if they're joking or if it's serious. Uh, just when I thought, oh, they're joking, they're kind of messing around over this training game. Mick McCarthy comes in and he, he again he, he kind of says like, you're all yeah, it was all it's all a bit of a laugh, but hey, he kind of tells them off. But I couldn't quite figure off figure out how he was telling them off. As far as I could tell, Jason McAteer didn't believe that one of the goals should count. <laughs> yeah, but Shay Given says um, the ball the ball was about that high, and I thought, have they got jumpers for goalposts? Yeah. You know, when you go over the park and you argue about whether it would have <laughs> hit the post or not, and then I was like, do Ireland not have goals when they're training? Well, was there, is that what just happened? Was it in Liechtenstein that this was taking place? Because <laughs> if you saw know. that Liechtenstein ground, yeah. like it is barely a park. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible some of the away grounds they play at. You're like, this is international football. And literally, in their whole qualifying, Romania is the only good ground they get to go to. It's in yeah. like every single yeah. round looks like a kind of a municipal kind of pitch that's being used for international football. Yeah, do you know what I thought? I felt a bit sad watching this. You know, like in the 90s, like Liechtenstein away, Macedonia away, like they, they, it would be proper leisure centres. And now yeah. when you watch like Andorra away, it's like, oh, this looks like a football ground, like a professional football yeah. ground. Mm. But you don't really see yeah. complete shambles like the Liechtenstein where it's like, this is a park. It doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah. Something consigned to the 90s. Well, I also thought, I don't know if you thought about this, but obviously the, I hate to keep going back to Roy because, no. you know, to me, this show, this documentary is all about Mick and just like what, what, what a human being he is and how he endured this and what lay on the other side. Like, I just am so glad we're talking about it. But like one of the issues had to be with Roy that he was traveling first class like the quality of life as a Man United player, when you consider like what you're describing there, having to go through this on your what's supposed to be your time off, like the <laughs> idea that you would ever question whether he wanted to play for his country when you had to really fucking want to play for your country to have to go through this shit and yeah. go to these weird ass places and potentially get injured by some postman who doesn't play the game or know how to tackle. <laughs> I mean, That's Alfinger like Harlan's job. If I'm going to get injured, I'm going to Harlan to do it. Yeah, like uh, you definitely don't see those grounds anymore. That's for no. sure. On the kind of uh, the humanity of Mick McCarthy. So there's a couple of kind of bits, films to promote Mick McCarthy, the man. One is a kind of, um, I mean, it would be fair to describe it as a slightly patronising representation of Barnsley. 
But this is another thing. Looks like something from a fucking Ken Loach film. (laughs) That's another intergenerational moment where his dad's going. Mick was meant to be down the mines or down the pits. Sorry, you're like, well, really? Is he? Is that that old? Yeah, yeah, that's a true story though. That's a hundred percent true. And when I talked to Mick about that, he was like, "Yeah, no, I was literally about to take my job and head off for a life as a miner." And yeah. I got the call. It was like, yeah, turns out I'm going to be a footballer. That's like, mad. That was the sliding doors he had. He should have gone down the pit, actually, as an apprentice electrician. You know, locally. And lucky for him, really, before he went for his interview to this a local mine up here, which is closed now, Barnsley came, came for him and took him on. And uh, that was the start of it, you know. Do you know what as well? Like, so the opening part of the documentary is like looking back at it in Barnsley with him growing up and almost get, getting a career down the pits. Can but I, you're like, just, can I just say my favourite detail of the Barnsley shops is one of the shops is called Hygienic Tattooing, <laughs> which is just an incredible like play. Like, what what has led to them needing to do that? What a worrying name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't think it wasn't hygienic until I saw the sign. And yeah, now it's like I... a perfectly safe restaurant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it places a seed of doubt in all the other tattooists in Barnsley, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a real <laughs> shot, shot across the bow. Isn't Why it? are they not calling themselves hygienic? <laughs> uh, but do you not think that the whole Barnsley thing is suddenly it's slotted in in my head? Like, oh, I, I understand the character of Mick McCarthy now. I understand yeah. his essence as a personality. Like, he's a Yorkshireman. He's a he's a South Yorkshireman, and that is why he's a bit like Jeff Boycott. And maybe he's not as personable. He's a bit harder to kind of not you as know, personable know as love. Jeff Boycott. It's a play. <laughs> but, but you know, he's that Yorkshire gruff. Well, just get on with it. He's that yeah. guy, isn't he? Mm. He's Yorkshire. That, that made a lot of sense to yeah. me about you know who he is. Yeah, and I don't know if Irish people have a frame of reference for Yorkshire people. To be totally honest, like I, I remember his. Uh, like his manner like we didn't know anyone like that like we probably had the tv shows that we watched on on the bbc but really when you think about it it does explain an awful lot of him and who he was and is today but like sometimes irish people come to england and i find it really hard to settle in like i was saying this recently that our our opinion of your country living in it as like seeing ourselves as like crocodile dundee going to new york sometimes is so different to how you view us to the point where i look at sitcoms and i go why is there no irish people in this sitcom so you can to me you can't name a sitcom that isn't written by an irish person that has Irish people in it. And I discount, I discount priests and builders. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But some people told me that, uh, yeah, there was uh, a next door neighbor in Carolina Hearns, but again, she was Irish. Oh yeah, Mary. Yeah, she was Irish. Yeah. But, but like, it is a thing that we're a minority who you don't even see as a minority in the country that we're just part of the place. But yet when we're here, we feel like like I've got to learn all this stuff that I don't know about, including, like you say, that's what Yorkshire people are like. 
I have no fucking clue what Yorkshire people are like. <laughs> I, I guess Mick McCarthy is what Yorkshire people are like. That's your only frame of reference is Mick McCarthy. How, how do you... The Ireland football team was very popular in England in the 90s, and particularly obviously in uh, USA 94 when England weren't in it. But they certainly were in um, the World Cup as well in 1990 after the initial draw. How did that go down in Ireland and why are you aware of that? We were aware that many English people were supporting Ireland in USA 94. And it seemed hilarious to us. Like it just seemed so hilarious to a lot of people. Again, I can't speak for everybody in Ireland, but I remember people going, did they think that if we hadn't qualified that we'd cheer for them? <laughs> Just everyone going, that's hilarious. They're cheering us on. But then, of course, Josh, there is a big problem here, which is that any time an Irish actor gets nominated for an Oscar, uh, there will be some report on the BBC or Sky News going, of course, uh, British actor. And you're just it just it drives right, yeah. Irish people bananas. Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, I mean, they, they couldn't, like, they, we weren't saying they're trying to claim this for themselves, the Irish team going to USA yeah. 94. But, you know, there was just general hilarity around the idea that, like, they're getting behind us. And some, there's something lovely about it as well. That, like, considering we would never fucking do that, that you guys would. <laughs> I, yeah. I remember going, wow, that's... Because we had printed up T-shirts. There was T-shirts, I remember, at the airport when everyone was leaving. Uh, going, tell Terry we'll bring him back a stick of rock, you know, Terry Venables. Yeah. Like, there was, this was a gr kind of rubbing it in your faces that you weren't yeah. going. And you're smiling, giving us the thumbs up, going, oh, we'll, we'll support you. Like, <laughs> was that actually more annoying in a way? Was that actually like killing you with kindness in a weird way? Like, <laughs> not at all. I mean, I was like, I, I definitely got the sense that everybody just thought this is brilliant. I mean, it's so cool that they're getting behind us. Uh, don't tell them that we would never do that in a million years if the tables were turned. But uh, yeah, that USA ninety four. Like, when you think about the first result in that, like to beat Italy one nil in the opening game of the World Cup. I mean, there are still people that talk about that Giants stadium uh, scenario where the entire Giants stadium is just Irish fans. Like there's no, yeah. there's no Italian fans there. It would later emerge that John Delaney's father had bought up loads of tickets for matches that Ireland weren't involved in and used them as a bargaining chip to get more tickets for Irish fans. Oh, wow. And again, sowing the seeds for the kind of weird corruption and finance stuff yeah. that John would later pursue himself. But it kind of explained how it happened. But I remember that is one of my most vivid footballing memories is Houghton with this kind of weird lob of the keeper. Yeah, like, I don't it's know a if strange you goal, goal, isn't it? Yeah. He was kind of falling backwards as he hits the ball. But like to beat Italy, having been knocked out by Italy in the previous World Cup was just like... Is that the greatest result in the history of Irish football? Well, Mick is, stands over one of the, the greatest results, and that would be beating the Dutch at home in Lansdowne. That kind of, you know, secured our place uh, in 2002. Right. And that was, you know, that was earth shattering at the time, especially how fancy do you remember how that Dutch team was. Yeah. But definitely Italy, the world, like in the World Cup, I'd say it would have to be number one.
Townsend right in there. Houghton also making his presence felt. There's his shot. It's a goal for Ireland. The goalkeeper caught badly out of position. And Ray Houghton has made it 1-0. Uh, just for one question I want to ask, you mentioned there like uh, Irish fans taking over Giant Stadium, but there's, there's a clip, there's a few clips in this of the Irish fans following the team away. And I was like, actually, that is a great experience. If you're an Irish fan following the Ireland team away, you've got an Irish behind every city. And you, so it's like, you know where to go. Yeah. When you, you go to an away game in a, in a place, it's like, oh, there's a place. Like, and not only is it a great place to be for us, like they, the owner probably wants us there. Yeah. yeah, unlike your fans where the owner assumes you're going to wreck the place. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just find a town like what town square has the most patio furniture <laughs> <laughs> um, have you been on a way gay like have you ever done it no I've never done it and you know had the opportunity oh, a couple man. of times but this has become like a huge you know best little boy in school kind of element to, to Ireland and Irish <laughs> support is like you know in some ways there is that stark contrast between you know you guys and your history of going abroad and not behaving so well that I think that the Irish fans that go abroad now specifically attempt <laughs> to be the best supporters like singing lullabies to children asleep on tubes like there's all this footage of yeah. Irish fans cleaning up the roads or helping uh, or what was it like you can find this footage anywhere you go just being unbelievably sound as supporters <laughs> and it's uh, it's now a thing and to the point where it sometimes annoys people that uh, that this is the lens they'll go to to be considered sound yeah it's uh, it's uh, i mean they certainly had that reputation at the time but so it was nice to see them booing roy Keane in their own ground <laughs> that really brought them back down to earth for me one of the most astonishing scenes is between so they get to the playoffs and they're playing Belgium and they draw one all at Lansdowne Road. Mm. And then bearing in mind what we know now about how Klopp or Guardiola is operating with their video analysis teams, is you see Mick McCarthy and his coaches watching the game on video and the lack of what you would deem now as tactical work on the video is incredible to the point where they're sat there and they're discussing Kenny Cunningham's Barnet at one point. <laughs> and they're all drinking they're all beer. beer. Yeah. They're all drinking they're all beer getting pissed. and just watching the game. <laughs> Imagine what Pep Guardiola's doing. There is no fucking way him and his coaches are discussing Phil Foden's haircut. There's no way. <laughs> but, Joe, but Josh, isn't this, I called you Joe there for a moment. Uh, Josh, isn't this what quickly Kevin is like I I just love the 90s yeah I, I love your podcast I love going how is this happening how <laughs> yeah remember that time when people would drink pints and watch the video of the game like on a VHS and rewind they're and also they're watching it on a VHS and the, 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 the goals will go in and they're not making tactical points about the goals. Nobody they're has talking, a No. There's no paper anywhere. Their analysis, I would say, is that of, you know, when you see a pundit and you think they're not going to book him again. Do you know what I mean? Like, when, they, <laughs> when they've got a pundit 
who's got the gig because a team's playing and they need someone who used to play for Middlesbrough. So they've got Craig Hignett in for once or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And you go, God, he hasn't got much to offer. That, that genuinely, you think, I don't think they've learned anything from this. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't, could you? I mean, it, it, like, it is just pints after. Yeah. It, you just hadn't begun. Like, I actually thought he was like, you see an awful lot more when you're watching the videotape, he says. Yeah. And I don't like, he's like, the sideline isn't the best vantage point. And you're like, surely someone else has thought of this before now. Surely yeah. this isn't, this isn't it. But it is. That's it. That's all they did. The best seat in the stadium is not the dugout, and McCarthy sifts through the evidence of the game looking for clues. This is our chance, I've not seen it before. This is This is Dave Connolly's chance. It's a right good chance. It finishes with him at the back post. This is a great chance. It finishes to Dave now. Yes, that was a chance. Tony, yeah, I think the chance was forgotten because Tony got involved in kicking the goalkeeper. When we were watching it, I said to him, what do you tell him to show up? Shut up, he says. And Andy says, that was me, you fucking tell me, shut up. <laughs> when we slaughtered him about his barnet, then he gets, look, he gets highlighted. Well, and look at his barnet, yeah. The barnet. Oh, the barnet. Barnet fair. Shoes. <laughs> <laughs> the alternative Yorkshire rhyming <laughs> We have to sit and watch it because it's, it's, it's sort of classed as manager speak when we say, no, I, I won't say anything until I watch the tape after and go, oh, come on, you know, you know what's going on. Mm. You don't know what's going on because no, you're, you're very passionate and emotional at the time and, and wound up about the game. Sitting watching the cold light of day and it's, it's very different. I've, I'm obsessed with the idea that I can't believe managers stand on the sideline. I find that absolutely Crazy. astonishing. But, and, and Bielsa makes himself go even lower. And you're like, you know, <laughs> have you ever like gone to a football match and you've got like the front row seats and you're like, this is a fucking write-off. I can't see a thing. You can't see a thing. I cannot yeah. understand what, why is why are these managers doing this? It blows my and mind. Why are these seats so expensive? Yeah. yeah, this is the worst seat. That dugout is the shittiest seat in the stadium. <laughs> Do, do I remember this right? Or was Big Sam Allardyce the first manager like it, to go yeah. into the stand with a Bluetooth headset? Yeah. And he was he was treated like a heathen yeah. Yeah. at the time. It's like, he's... What's he doing? Yeah. He's gone too far. Yeah. He's lost his mind. But you're right. An upper tier seat at the front is way better than the front row. Yeah. Madness. Yeah. No I don't understand why... But I, is there something about when you've played football that long, you, you get used to being at pitch level? I don't know. I don't oh, know. Well, look, we haven't even talked about exactly how much shouting Mick McCarthy does from the side, yeah. right? He does an <laughs> insane amount of like PE teacher. Get on him! Get on! Him. Yeah. Like, he's going to get on him. He's he's a defender. Like, so, like so, so, and I'd say this to Mick's face. Like, I'd be like, "Why are you shouting at them? Don't lose the game!" Like at one point, he he shouts that from the sideline. Don't lose. <laughs> I burst out laughing at that point, but obviously, you know, there's so much adrenaline. Do you think he's shouting almost for himself? Nearly, it's yeah. It's just a way of maintaining his own calm in a weird way. Yeah. Do you know what, Like, you do it as a fan, don't you, I suppose? Yeah, well, I, go, like I say about going, going back and doing a documentary about you going and doing those open spots, like, this is Mick McCarthy learning to be a manager. 
Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you can't be too hard. Yeah, like I do look at some of it and I'm going he, like I, I have obviously read around this and stuff and the guy that made it, uh, Keith Duggan, I think his name is, said that, you know, Mick watched it after it was, uh, you know, edited and ready to go and was completely happy with absolutely everything that he had given. But I wonder how happy he'd be now with all of the yeah. years that have passed and like, you know, it's so obvious, like you guys have watched more of these kind of documentaries than me. But like heart on his sleeve is not it doesn't do justice to exactly how emotionally involved he is in this. Like he's yeah. living and dying with this. That's professionally that's not a good idea <laughs> as a manager to to be that emotionally involved. No, it it does feel like it's also that thing that you suddenly get the feeling because you watch it and it's like ten matches and then you realise at the end that this has gone over 18 months. And you know that thing they say about, like, international management's kind of weird experience for the manager, but, like, because of how far apart the games are. But you go, God, there's so much waiting around for Mick McCarthy after he's drawn one all in Latvia or whatever's happened. That this, it's just, these matches matter so much more to him than they would matter if he was the Millwall manager. Yeah, and also, look, the League of Ireland basically got no coverage at the time. I did think about this watching it, that it was like, this is the only show in town to a degree in terms of football yeah. in Ireland at the time, that there was a wait until, you know, the lads come home and we play these games, that there wasn't the distraction of the league. Everyone was, way too many people were watching Premier League football that yeah. should have been going to their local club. That's always been a problem for Ireland. But there was that sense that the circus descended, but there was this fallow period in between these breaks. And you can imagine the pressure building as these journalists continue to ask you questions like, what was the question? Was it, would you prefer to, what, do you guys remember what this question was? Towards the end, he's asked, would you like to win? <laughs> Is it more important to win than to play, play, play well. fairly or something. Oh, yeah, yeah it's so that the, one yeah. where he's talking about the player who'd hold back another player or something. Yeah, that wouldn't go in if somebody's clean through on goal. Yeah. And it's just like some of the questions he was being asked, if you consider that that's one that made it into the documentary. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like even now, though, he's so good with the press. Mick is so good at handling the press. And you can see why. I mean, his apprenticeship in dealing with <laughs> dumbass questions is, you know, world class because pff, he he's seen the press from every single angle, I'd say, across his career. Like to to have that Roy King thing play out in your life where nobody can disassociate you from that. I mean, yeah. it's essentially what Russell Brand has lived through, that there's nothing the press can do that he's not ready for at this point. So I kind of love watching Mick McCarthy in press conferences and seeing him bat away questions. He's quite confrontational, isn't he? He's like in press conferences. I think he creates now an aura. Like there's lots of clips on YouTube of him just like facing down journalists. Yes. And like if they ask a question he's not happy with, he's not going to just give you an answer. He is going to like confront you about that. You see a few glimpses of that yeah. throughout the document throughout the documentary. And I think that's. 
I think I, I like Mick McCarthy. I've come out of this documentary liking him, but I think beforehand I had this impression of him where actually he's not that nice a guy. But I took from this that he's been through a lot and actually he's a really burned from a lot of his experience with journalists and actually that's him just taking them on rather than just being a nice guy, like being a nice guy for the sake of a press conference and saying something that's going to get him in trouble later on. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think that in as much as them watching videotape the way they were watching it, it just it boggles the mind. It also boggles the mind to me when I watch it that he isn't just going right. That's enough. I'm not I'm not talking to you guys. It yeah. just it's not in him and it's not of the time for a manager to give one and two word Jose answers like Mourinho. What, that archetype wasn't there. So you couldn't just be totally dismissive of the press. You were expected to have a chat. Like, how many times do you see him leaning on something in a lobby with more journalists getting more time off him? Yeah. I don't think that happens now, does it? No, no, there's not much protection. On the subject of him getting burned, the most astonishing bit of the documentary is when they lose to Belgium, they lose 2-1, and they don't qualify. And then he... He discusses that he went into the dressing room <laughs> and he got, he kicked a coffee cup and it got stuck <laughs> on his pot. foot. A coffee pot. And it got stuck on his foot for a quite, he seems to arrive for quite a while. And, <laughs> and as you say, Mick McCarthy's not, I initially thought, is he, is this a joke? But it's not a joke. <laughs> no, it's, it's not a joke. Before the play, <laughs> when they've lost, and this is with a team that's not that I got that much respect for him. Oh, it's such a shame the cameras weren't in the dressing room for this. Because <laughs> the image of Mick McCarthy having just failed to qualify for the World Cup, hopping around the dressing room with a coffee pot cut, stuck through his foot, <laughs> is absolutely <laughs> incredible. And he says, um, the coffee pot got stuck in my foot. I'm sure they're going to send me a bill for it. <laughs> Which I thought. A wonderful moment of levity in what must have been quite a stressful situation. <laughs> but it sounds like he trashed the place that he went yeah. in. Yeah, he sounded trash. But, you know, um, so when he's talking about it, he come in the dressing room, they've lost to Belgium, they're out, they're not going to make the World Cup. He comes in and he's like, tra- he says he's really angry and trashing the place. But then it becomes apparent he's doing this on his own. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, when the players come in, I've calmed right down. And I found this interesting because I'd watched the Man City documentary and there's a bit in it where Man City have a devastating defeat and you think Guardiola's going to come in and absolutely ravage the team. Like, well, I can't remember what, I think it might be a Champions League defeat. But he just comes in and goes, never mind, lads, come on, get yourself together, get, get dressed, let, come on, get on with it. And, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting because at that point, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to have a go. It's more important. The, the guys are going to be crushed. It's more important that they are able to bounce back from this. So there's no need like dissecting this dead horse. And I thought, oh, Mick McCarthy's doing the same thing. I just found it so interesting that in a moment of devastation like that, you managers know the right thing to do is not to kind of get into your team and smash them after a devastating yeah. defeat like that. It's like, actually, they all just need an arm around them and just move on. Mm. Yeah. Whereas I would be of the opinion that you want to get in that dressing room with the team and trash the place together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's all do it. Yeah, come on, lads. <laughs> it really helps. Do you think there's a moment when the coffee cup's on his foot where he's just like, this is not my day? Do you yeah, know what like I mean? when you're a kid and you throw a tantrum over, you know, doing something on the computer game that won't, work for like I remember putting my fist through a wall in my bedroom and uh, <laughs> in that moment realising 
this temper stuff has got to stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this, this is unsustainable. I've got a question. Is he getting his foot stuck on the coffee pot? Is he kicking the pot but getting his foot into the hole where you'd pour the coffee in? Yeah, like, that's, what, that's my vision. Or is he booted a fresh hole into the pot? No, oh, his in, foot my, is then stuck in my head is where the lid would go. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I his think foot. that's what's happened. It's got, <laughs> but he's wearing a shoe as well, right? Obviously. Yeah. So it's, it's quite a big... And presumably the coffee's spilled all over his shoe. And unless I suppose they'd finished the coffee at half time. But it's just an incredible cartoon image. Yeah, because he's probably in boots because he wore... Oh, like, right, he, yeah. He wore, like, full kit on the sideline, full tracksuit. Which is it? So, you know, there has to be a few falls taken while yeah. <laughs> trying to kick this coffee pot. He's also with it. Like, I kind of admire... This has happened on his own in the in the dressing room. He didn't need to tell everyone that he got a coffee cup stuck to his foot. <laughs> like he has volunteered that information of, of an embarrassing thing that's happened. He's volunteered that for no reason. There's nothing to get. Here is the other thing: is that no other manager agrees to that chat the evening after that. Yeah. The evening that's taken place, like the amount he gave to this documentary is again the mark of Mick McCarthy. Said he's just been knocked out going to the World Cup. Absolutely devastated. He set up the wildest temper tantrum of his life and he sits down that evening in a polo neck, <laughs> sipping beer. Drinking red wine drinking, at the end of it, by Drinking the way. red wine and able to assess the damage and look at yeah. what's taken place. I mean, no other manager agrees to that. No one. They're just like, forget it. Don't talk yeah. to me about the documentary. I'll talk to you in a few weeks. It's quite a sad end. He says there's a thin line between success and failure, which he describes as eight yards long and three inches wide. Why is it eight yards long? I don't know. Is that a description <laughs> of a goal? I don't know whether that's if he's plucked those numbers out of nowhere or if that is a description of something. And then he kind of says about how happy he is yeah, with the job. It's eight foot wide. A, a goal is eight foot wide. Oh, eight yards wide. Oh, sorry. No, yeah, I don't know. No, hang on. What's that? 24 foot. Yeah, that's eight yards. Feet, that yeah. is eight yards. Okay, oh, yeah, okay, so, yeah so, okay, fair enough. He means the goal line. <laughs> Story checks out. Yeah. And then he kind of talks about how he might have lost friends through this, but he says it's their loss. Presumably he means like Paul McGrath and John Aldridge, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, oh, that's so. sad. And then I just wanted to ask what happened afterwards. Because he, he keeps his job. Mm. And then what happened in Euro 2000? He failed to qualify for that they as well, did they he? They don't qualify. But uh, what, again, it was a narrow playoff situation. And if anything, it was more soul-destroying than this one. I mean, that documentary would have been insane. Is that the Henry Handball one? No, no. Again, that's another a whole that's other another documentary. <laughs> but uh, uh, what I feel is remarkable is by September 1998, you know, we beat Croatia. And, you know, Robbie Keane and Damien Duffer in the team, like the overhaul of the squad and how he built from this low to get to 2002. Like, that's an incredible triumph when you consider how low this low was to then go, right, well, we do need young attack minded players and to find two. Well, you don't find two. The two, those two players had, you know, I think they'd won the Euros with the under 18 squad and they were just, yeah, they were 
like I don't know if you guys feel the same way about Robbie Keane and Damien Duff, but at the time they were they were hot shit. Like they were big players, and to get them, you know, playing well for the senior squad was huge. And you know, when you talk about him being able to motivate people, he did get them working on the same page. Like they, he turned this squad around. And then he goes to the World Cup, does a great job in two thousand two. Yeah, no, but no issues there. No issue there. No, no, no. <laughs> There's your fucking documentary, mate. I mean, every, every year is drama. Drama, yeah. Um, oh, man. And then, but I think he did a great... Did you get to the second round or the quarters? You said, Spain, wasn't it? Spain yeah, got knocked Spain down. Penalties, penalties to Spain yeah. in the second round. So, really... That, and is that probably your last really good performance at an international tournament? All right, take it easy, Chief. No, no, I'm just... <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> you were at 2016, weren't you? But that you went out in the group. So, is that... It, in hindsight, is Mick McCarthy considered a success as Irish manager? A hundred percent. I think that, you know, around 2002 and three, there was so much Roy love and the country was so divided on this whole thing that like you should never walk out on your country no matter what. And that, uh, oh, Mick McCarthy should have managed this better who confronts a player in front of the whole team? These were the debates that raged for years. Like I would say there was a good three year period where you could bring that up in any pub and a, a fucking argument would kick off. Like it was so polarizing that it was ridiculous and you really fell into one camp or the other. Yeah. But I think as time has worn on, people could see that there was something to be said on both sides but that you know if you're a nicer person you don't walk out on the world cup like and i think that 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 does impact on this that mick isn't a su super nice guy and yeah. that he never pictured someone he can't put himself in the shoes of someone who isn't you know that decent who wouldn't see the decency in what i'm doing by calling you out on this trying to get everybody on the same page he was just totally did not expect the outcome of that. And I think, like you say, as Roy's voice has emerged on TV, we've come to understand both characters better. Yeah. But Mick is definitely still regarded. I mean, the fact that we had him back, like you got the job again. Yeah. Is, is the proof of that. I think there's an interesting thing as well. If you go back to that bit in this documentary where he's going, I'm not going to sort out the room for the press conference. <laughs> <laughs> and you go... Mick is himself dealing with the amateurism at the FIA, FAI, yeah, FAI. Um, the FIA is the Formula One. People, it's a different it? thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <that's> a <laughs> he's dealing with a lot. He's trying that, to sort out Formula yeah, One as well. Danny Eccleston's <laughs> Grand Prix. Um, but um, he's dealing with the amateurism in the FAI on camera in 1997. That in five years he will be the man defending as Roy Keane kind of uses that as his reason to leave, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's strange, isn't it? He's under pressure from all these different angles. Oh, my God. And look, guys, I can't recommend a book more than Mark Tighe's Champagne Football to understand the depth of the problems that were rotting inside the organisation and how 2002 precipitated this man coming to power and nose diving it into the floor 
while paying himself four hundred thousand pounds a year like he's been paid more than the president of america like he the, despite the fact that the organization was in turmoil and penniless uh and then kind of blaming the financial crisis it's a must read it's an incredible well, book about football mismanagement onto, yeah. onto my ethical <laughs> online bookseller app and uh, <laughs> Uh, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure. I've yeah, can I just it. add one foot one footnote before we yeah. go? That when Belgium knock out um, Ireland and you see Mick McCarthy devastated on the pitch, the first song that they play oh, yeah. in the stadium, "We Are the Champions." And I was like, okay. The next song, I was trying to figure out what it was. Like you can hear the chit, the crowd in Belgium are chanting along to this, and they're going, da, 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 da. And I really, it's the song from the end of Rocky. It's the Rocky song. Oh, you're right. It's the Rocky song. It's interesting. Going the distance. And <laughs> that is the soundtrack to the end of Ireland's World Cup 98 bit. Oh, dear. Crowd of, crowd oh. of Belgians singing the end of Rocky. It is a bleak documentary about <laughs> 90s football management. It's only but an really, hour long. Is there, any, is there anything we like more on this podcast than that? Yeah. My favourite bit of this podcast has been you you saying, I want to I want to add a point on the humanity of Mick McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs> You're not getting this content anywhere else. Um, would you recommend uh, Mick McCarthy to listen to this? Do you think he'd consider this a fair analysis of what he lived through? I think I could recommend it to him all day and he wouldn't do it. Like he said, he's not into... Self-analysis. He's yeah. not into trawling over stuff, and yeah, it wouldn't. I, I don't think we've said anything negative here. No. Uh, if anything, we've probably aired a bit too much on the side of makes an amazing guy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's mainly because I'm scared of him. <laughs> um, Charles Regan, thank you very much, lads. I love the podcast. Thanks oh, so much thanks, for having mate. me on. Thank you to Jarleth Regan. That was an absolute pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, watching that. I would recommend everyone watch it on YouTube. Uh, the book uh, he recommended is called Champagne Football. Uh, an absolute pleasure. If you know any more documentaries about 90s football, we've, we've astonishingly got a few more in the bank, but if there's any more, do send them our way. This is how to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at QuicklyKevin and sign up to the mailing list at QuicklyKevin.com OK, I'm going to end with a quiz based on something I found on George Ware's Wikipedia page when I was reading about him being president. Now, in 2004, Palais made the choice of the 100 greatest living footballers, the FIFA 100. George Ware was included... I'm going to do a huge game of starting 11. One life. You need to name me people on this list, okay? What, what year did he do this, sorry? 2004. Okay. Anyone who is living in 2004. Do you understand that? Yeah. There is a section called criticism <laughs> on the Wikipedia. I should say that David Meller complained that some of the selections were politically motivated rather than made purely on football grounds. He suggested that selections looked as if they'd come from the pen of Set Blatter rather than Pelé. As evidence for this, Meller noted the wide geographical spread of selected players. A true selection would be more heavily based in South America and Europe, he argued. So how are we doing this? Penalty shootout? Five each? No, it's first one to get one wrong okay. is out. Right. Okay, Chris. 
Diego Maradona. Correct. Uh, I would like to pick Pele himself. Of course he's included himself. He'd be an idiot not to. Um, original Ronaldo. Correct. Do you know what, guys? I'm going to up the level of uh, challenge here. You can't have anyone that's been from a country we've already chosen. I know we have Ronaldo and Pele. That's gone. But from now on, once the country's gone, it's gone. Uh, Michel Platini. Michel Platini. Surely. He is there, yes. Zinedine Zidane. He is there, yes. Lothar Mateus. Lothar Mateus. Surely. Surely Lothar Mateus is there. He is, yes. Uh, Figo. He's gone Figo. And he is there. Marco van Basten. Marco van Basten. He must be there, mustn't he? He must be there from the Netherlands. He is there, yes. Um, we, we haven't had any Englishmen yet, have we? No. Let's go Gary Lineker. Of course Gary Lineker's there, along with Shearer, Owen, Keegan, Bobby Charlton, Beckham and Gordon Banks. Yeah. Um, Andre Shevchenko. Correct. Uh, what other country? We had uh, Italy, we've had Italy, haven't we? Paolo Maldini. Yeah. Let's go Denmark, Peter Schmeichel. Surely. Surely. Yes, along with the Loudrop brothers, we're also in there. Uh, Northern Ireland, George Best. Great choice. Northern Ireland, George Best. Correct. Um, Colombia, Carlos Valderrama. Uh, uh, Sto- uh, yes, he is there for Bulgaria. Uh, I think this guy's alive at the time. Hungary, Ferenc Puskas. Ah, oh, good one. If he's alive. He is alive, yes, correct. It's a shame Maldini's gone because Roberto Baggio is there in the Italy team school. Oh. <laughs> One of the greatest footballers of all time. Is that, is that why there's a criticism section? Henrik <laughs> Larsson. Uh, Henrik Larsson oh, from Sweden is incorrect. He oh. didn't make the list. Oh. And there we go. Uh, you could have had... There's some... There's some well, I won't take you through all of them, but... Uh, uh, Scotland, Kenny Dalglish, obviously. Yeah. Romania, Georgie Hadji. Yeah. Senegal, uh, El Hajjouf. Not so sure about that what? one. Republic of Ireland, Roy Keane. Uh, JJ Kocha from Nigeria, etc., etc. Skull. Another victory. Another victory. You're on fire. Chalk it up. What would you like to end on? Okay. Please, can I have Did You Ever by Linda Martin and a Mr. Mick McCarthy? Absolutely great choice. Well done, Skull. Congratulations on a superb choice. We'll see you next week. Until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. Did you ever? Not so much that you could notice. Could you estimate how many? Eight or nine. Will you do it anymore? This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. 
When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.